In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today is the fourth Sunday of the Coptic month of Paopi, and we just read from the Gospel of St. Luke about one of the great miracles that our Lord performed, the raising of the dead, of the son, the only son of a widow from the village or the area of Naim. <coughs> and I think we are all quite familiar with the story. It's one of the um, accounts of the Gospels in which there is uh, a miracle of resurrection or sometimes called resuscitation because of course the difference between raising um, this uh, widow's son or Lazarus or the other accounts of the resurrection uh, uh, miracles is that they all died again but in the case of course of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection he did not die again so um, the story is familiar with us to familiar to us and Often it has been described that the, um, the gospel account of this miracle is uh, a sort of clash or a meeting of two, um, uh, two groups of people that are uh, journeying and come into contact with each other. Christ and his disciples and his followers and on the other hand you have this entourage of the funeral procession. So you have these two processions or entourages that are traveling and somehow come to meet together and and so we have this beautiful this beautiful meeting of of the life of the world Christ to his life meeting death and life overcoming death but another way for us to think about this meeting between Christ and the mother the widow is that there's a meeting between the manifestation of God and the cry of the vulnerable and at the very beginning of St. Luke's Gospel, when Christ wanted to announce his preaching and his mission in, in the world, he, we read in the very early account of uh, Luke's Gospel that he entered into the synagogue and there he opened up the scrolls to read and he read from Isaiah, the prophet. And he read the following. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to, pray, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then Christ declared that on that day, the scriptures were being fulfilled in his very person. So from the very beginning of St. Luke, we see sort of this theme that St. Luke wants to give us about Christ and his work and his ministry that he has come to preach the gospel to the poor, to lift up and heal the brokenhearted, to give liberty to those who are in bondage and captivity, to open the eyes of the blind, and so on. So the language of Christ, or sorry, the language of the gospels is always about how Christ, when he reveals or manifests himself, reveals and manifests the very glory and presence of God among the people. And in this sense, then, the, we, we can look at the miracles from a, a number of different perspectives. Of course, the miracles show the divinity of Christ. They show that the one who does the miracles, who raises the dead, can only be God himself. But more importantly uh, for us, the, the miracles are signs. They point to something. They reveal something. They, they prove an assertion. So Christ often, when he performs the miracles, he, 
he will make certain assertions about himself and about how what he says about himself is relevant for us. For example, he will speak of himself as the light of the world, not just to proclaim that he is a divine person, but to, to, to make the assertion that because he is the light of the world, those who believe in him walk in light and those who reject him live in darkness. So the assertion is not just about himself, but it's a sign revealing something to us about our choices, our decisions, our own faith in God. So in the same way, what is it that he is essentially asserting in the gospel today in the miracle, even though he doesn't say anything other than to the widow, he says, what, do not weep. He says to her something which none of us could ever say to somebody who is in a funeral procession carrying the, uh, their, their child to bury their child. None of us can, in that moment, approach somebody and say, do not weep. But in a sense, this is his assertion. His assertion is that I have the authority to say to you, do not weep. And I have the power to show you that I am the hope that you are seeking. Now, it's, I think it's very important for us to, to realize that in the, in the miracle of the raising of the, the widow of Nain, that yes, of course, she's mourning the death of her child. But that's not really the point of the, of the story. If, you, if, we, if we sort of read between the lines carefully, the gospel says he was his mother's only son and she was a widow. In other words, there are two things that are being said here that are pointing to something other than just that a family member has died. She is the only son, he is the only son of a widow. Now, in those days, who was it that took care of and provided for a family? It was the man. The woman needed a man to provide for her livelihood. And so if her husband died, that obligation went to her son or sons. So the Bible is telling us that she has no future. It's, it's not merely that she is mourning the death of her child, which is, of course, significant in and of itself. But what the Bible is telling us is this is a hopeless situation. This is not just somebody who's in deep pain because they're mourning a death. This is somebody who has no future. This is somebody who has no support system for the rest of their life. This is somebody who has no possibilities according to the systems of the world. That's the, the situation in which Christ asserts that to her, do not weep. So the, the assertion then, if we compare it to the other miracles, like I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection and the life, is that he's saying, I am the hope of those who have no hope. I am the help of those who have no helper. Which is one of the beautiful um, lines in the litany of the sick as we pray every matins on Sundays and in the weekdays. He who loosens the bound and uplifts the fallen. You are he, O Lord, who loosens the bound and uplifts the fallen. The hope of those who have no hope and the help of those who have no helper. If we can memorize that, maybe we can just say it together. The hope of those who have no hope and the help of those who have no helper. Let's say it together. The hope 
of those who have no hope and the help of those who have no helper. Remember that part of the prayer of the Litany of the Sick and use it when you sort of have one of those days or you're anxious about the future or you're afraid of something in your life. Just lower your head and say, Lord, you are the hope of those who have no hope and the help of those who have no helper. And this is what St. Paul said about the virtue of hope in his epistle to the Romans. He says, now hope that is seen is not hope for, he, for, who, hopes for, what he, for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So hope is only a virtue that applies to a hopeless situation according to every human possibility. That's hope. That's the difference between hope and optimism, right? Optimism is more earthly. It's uh, how do I just sort of try to look at the situation a little bit better? How do I see the, the cup half full and not half empty, right? It's sort of a, a mind trick. We, we're optimistic about the earthly situation itself. But hope is a divine virtue which acknowledges that there is no earthly solution, there is no earthly possibility, there is no earthly system that can manage this. So it must come from above. And therefore we have the virtue of hope. So I want to share with you about um, a book that I've been reading and, um, and share with you a little bit about this, this story. It's about a, a priest, his name is Father, Father Walter Chizek, Father Walter Chizek who died in 1984. And he was a Polish-American uh, priest in Pennsylvania. And um, in 1937, he was sent to Poland um, to work in the mission field in Poland. His ancestors were Polish, so he had come to America as an immigrant. But then he went back to uh, to minister in Poland as a, as a missionary or as in a mission, uh, in the mission field. And at that time, uh, right after that, the Soviet Union occupied Poland in, in uh, Eastern Poland in 1939. And um, a number of uh, people went into exile into Russia to the Soviet Union. And they were working in labor camps after the occupation of Poland. And so he, he desired greatly to go, to go into the Soviet Union, where, of course, it was very dangerous and very, uh, very unpleasant environment. And he's an American. He wanted to go into Russia to, to work in the labor camps secretly in order to minister to the people who were working in these labor camps. So he created a false ID. He gave himself a new Polish name. And he slipped into Russia, into the Soviet Union. And there he went to basically sell himself as a slave, if you will, just to be with his people, to be with the people who needed a pastor, to, to be with people who needed a priest among them, even secretly. And after a couple of years, whether it was through some informants, of course, who began to hear that he was an actually a priest and that he had a different name and he was an American and he was, from, he was Polish, he was arrested. 
He was arrested and he was interrogated and accused of being a Vatican spy that was supporting the Germans. So he was imprisoned in, um, if you're familiar at all with any of the sort of the history of the Soviet prison camps, there's a famous prison camp called the Lubyanka prison in Moscow. It was famous for its tortures and sort of the evil that took place there. And there he was sent uh, as, again, um, one who was accused of espionage, as one who was accused of being a, a spy, working against the Soviet Union. And he spent a number of years there in solitary confinement. Day after day, he was interrogated, sometimes 24 hours. He was starved. And he, he related all of these experiences in a, in a memoir, or a, a sort of an autobiography, called With God in Russia. And he wrote another book called He Leadeth Me, and I'll just say something about the two of them. But So even though he tried to prove his innocence, that he was just a priest trying to minister to his people, he had no intentions of spying or helping the Germans or anything like this, he was accused, he was, he was uh, accused and he was actually convicted of being um, a spy, and he was sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in the gulags of Siberia. So these were like the worst Siberia, where the temperature was sometimes 30, 40, below zero Fahrenheit. And they essentially worked them to death and starved them to death. So he was sent for 15 years to Siberia as a convicted spy. And eventually, um, after he finished his, his, his term, the some first few years that he served, plus the 15 years, and then they kept him in the Soviet Union sort of under house arrest. So he spent almost 25 years, I think 23 years total. He went in as a 33-year-old young priest and he spent 23 years um, as a Soviet um, prisoner. And then eventually, and of course in, in the U.S. in 1940s, very early after he was arrested, they declared him dead in the U.S. So his family, everybody, the U.S. sort of closed the case, he died. And he could never write back to his family. So every day that he was in these prison camps, he couldn't even get word out to anybody that he was alive. That's sort of the, so in 1963, in 1963, after he was under house arrest in the Soviet Union, he was finally allowed to get a letter to one of his sisters who then notified the, the U.S. government and they made, or they, they made a trade. They, they traded two Soviet prisoners in the U.S. for Father Walter Chizik in 1963. He came home. He continued serving as a priest until he died peacefully in 1984. So that's sort of the, the backdrop. And when he came back, he wrote two books. The first one is With God in Russia, which is sort of a detailed memoir of what daily life, minute by minute sometimes, was like in these prison camps. It's very difficult to read. The other one is more of a spiritual memoir. It's, he, it's called He Leadeth Me, and it's more of spiritually, like a spiritual, the spiritual lessons that he learned in Russia being a prisoner. So most people find it easier to read He Leadeth Me because it's really just focused more on the spiritual lessons, but it's very important, I think, sometimes to read these detailed accounts of what these people went through to sort of wake us up, shake us of, out of the comfort and the, um, 
sometimes the complaining and grumbling that we so easily fall into in the convenience of our own life here. So I want to just share a little bit with you from his, his life and his experience. So his experience daily was sometimes solitary confinement, and sometimes they would put like 300 people in a room maybe the size of like the sanctuary where you were like sardines, and uh, there would be like a bucket in the corner as the restroom. No sanitation, no dignity, no, nowhere to be able to stretch out to sleep. It was meant to break you. And then they would put you in solitary confinement where you, you know, didn't see a human soul for a, n- a number of days or weeks. Um, hunger, their, their daily portion with some hot water. Um, occasionally maybe a small raw fish they would get. Um, the interrogations, which they'd keep you up all night interrogating you, just trying to get you to admit to something that you didn't do. The freezing cold with sometimes very uh, mediocre uh, covering for your body. And total despair everywhere. People, people would maim themselves. They'd cut off when they were working. Sometimes they would forgive me for being so... Um, expressive with this, but sometimes they would cut off their fingers in order to get out of work because they were dying out in the workplace. Um, they, would, they would do something intentionally to affect their lungs so that they can go to the doctor and be excused from work, maybe get a, a small bowl of soup. I mean, terrible things that, that he encountered. Uh, just to give you an example from his own words of this, what starvation was like what starvation was like. He says, one evening, as our group was being led to the toilet, I noticed a big ham bone, just a bone, in a corner of the corridor. When the guard wasn't looking, I snatched it up and hid it inside my coat. In the toilet, I washed it off as best as I could and put it in my pocket. The rest of the day, I sat in the cell, biting off pieces of it, grinding it to powder between my teeth and swallowing it. I broke it up and offered pieces to the others, to the other prisoners, but their teeth weren't strong enough to chew. So this is just one example of like the desperation of what hunger does. But he never lost sight of why he went to Russia, why he went to the Soviet Union. So he said, I talked to the sick from time to time, trying to encourage them as much as I could, but there wasn't much anyone could do at times. I could and did give many of them absolution, I'd sit close alongside them sometimes, whispering the prayers of the dying. I only hope it consoled them as much as it did me to be able to act as a priest again. And even when he was there, of course, they would discover any of the other priests that were in the camps. There were a number of camps that were all working on different projects up in Siberia. And so word would get around that there's another priest in camp number three, and they would arrange somehow for for them to know each other and they would try to secretly have liturgy. So he says, and one time, he said, I was informed that there was another priest, his name was Father Casper. So Father Chizik, he described how they first met. He says, Father Casper came looking for me in the barracks one night. Some of the Polish prisoners had told him there was another priest in the camp. He found me before I had a chance to look him up, and he asked me if I wanted to pray the liturgy. I was overwhelmed. It had been more than five years since I prayed the liturgy. I made arrangements to meet him in his barrack the next morning as soon as the six o'clock signal sounded. 
Then he says, they made liturgy, they made the liturgy wine out of raisins that they had stolen on the docks. Little raisins. And he says, my chalice, and then they would steal some bits of flour from the kitchen in order to make the bread. And then he says, my chalice that morning was a whiskey glass. And the patent to hold the bread was, the, was a gold disc from a pocket watch. A gold disc from a pocket watch. He says, but my joy at being able to celebrate the liturgy again can never be described. So throughout his biography, or his autobiography, you have these beautiful uh, moments where um, in the camp, they are celebrating the liturgy secretly, feast days, and, and how sometimes they would walk past each other as if they didn't know each other, like in their free time, and they would have confession. Or he would go in the middle of the night next to the bed of somebody and hear his confession or pray the prayers of somebody who was dying. And so you, there's this beautiful image of a church that's existing in these prison camps. But now I just want you to hear a little bit of his own words again about a few lessons about his experience with hope. His experience with hope. The first one is that God alone suffices God alone sustains. Again, the hope of those who have no hope and the help of those who have no helper. He says, through the long years of isolation and suffering, God had led me to an understanding of life and his love that only those who have experienced it can fathom. He had stripped away from me the many external consolations, all of his security, all of, his, all of the foundations that his life was built on. He had stripped away from me many of the external consolations, physical and religious, that men rely on and had left me with a core of seemingly simple truths to guide me. In other words, even my religious life was stripped down to just dark faith. And yet what a profound difference they had made in my life, what strength they gave me, what courage to go on. There was but a single vision, God, who was all in all. There was but one will that directed all things, God's will. I only had to see it, to discern it in every circumstance in which I found myself, and let myself be ruled by it. God is in all things, sustains all things, directs all things. To discern this in every situation and circumstance, to see his will in all things, was to accept each circumstance and situation and let oneself be borne along in perfect confidence and trust. Nothing could separate me from him, because he was in all things. No danger could threaten me, no fear could shake me except the fear of losing sight of him. The future was hidden, the future hidden, hidden as it was, was hidden in his will, and therefore acceptable to me no matter what it might bring. By renouncing finally and completely all control of my life and future destiny, I was relieved as a consequence of all responsibility. I was freed from anxiety and worry, from every tension, and could float serenely upon the tide of God's sustaining providence in perfect peace and soul a perfect peace of soul. Again, these words are important because they come from somebody who is in the, the midst of utter evil. It's not a theologian sitting behind a comfortable desk sipping his coffee and writing a book. The next sort of meditation that I took from his words was that God's will is always right there in front of us. It's right there in front of us. He said, I realized God's will was not hidden somewhere out there, but that the situation in which I found myself 
was his will for me. He wanted me to accept these situations as if coming directly from his hands, to let go of the reins and place myself entirely at his disposal. He was asking of me an act of total trust, allowing for no interference or restless striving on my part, no reservation, no exceptions, no areas where I could set conditions or hesitate. He was asking a complete gift of self, nothing held back. It demanded absolute faith in God's existence, providence, his concern for the minutest details, his power to sustain and protect me. It meant losing the last hidden doubt, the fear that God will not bear you up. Another beautiful sort of reflection from his experience is the, the gift, what he calls the grace of powerlessness, the grace of weakness. He said the greatest grace God can give such a man is to send him a trial he cannot bear with his own powers and then sustain him with his grace so he may endure to the end and be saved. The greatest gift God can send us, he's saying, is to send us a trial that we cannot bear on our own, by our own powers. Again, going back to the widow, right? The hope of those who have no hope, the help of those who have no helper. Another beautiful thing is how we learn from pain and suffering. How we learn from pain and suffering. He said, it is much easier to see the redemptive role of pain and suffering in God's plan if you are not actually undergoing pain and suffering. It was only by struggling with such feelings, however, that growth occurred. In other words, it's, it's easy to sort of think about how pain and suffering can be beneficial for us when we're not actually in the pain and suffering. But it's only in actually struggling through the pain and suffering that we grow. He said, each victory over discouragement gave an increase in spiritual courage. Every time we overcome our discouragement, every time we overcome our hopelessness, every time we overcome our despair, there's growth. Every victory over discouragement gave an increase in spiritual courage. Every success, however fleeting, in finding the hand of God behind all things made it easier to recapture the sense of his purpose in a day of seemingly, of seemingly senselessness. Every time we make an act of faith, our faith grows. Every time we overcome discouragement, our courage grows. Again, discovering, he talks about discovering human freedom. What kind of freedom can one discover in the prison camps of the Soviet Union, deprived of everything? He says, the body can be confined, but nothing can destroy the deepest freedom in man, the freedom of the soul, and the freedom of mind and will. These are the highest and noblest faculties in man. They are what make him the sort of man that he is, and they cannot be constrained. It's one thing they couldn't take from him. Even in prison, a man can choose to do good or evil, to fight for survival or to, go, to allow himself to go into despair, to serve God and others or turn inward and selfish. So there's always the freedom that can't be taken away from us even in the worst circumstances. And it's precisely when those things are taken away that we discover those greater faculties that lead us to a true life of freedom. So... I just gave you a taste of his words. I encourage you, if you are up to the, the task of reading sort of a difficult account of somebody's life, um, to, to again, look at either of these books, With God in Russia or He Leadeth Me. And just, I'll end with everything that 
I said about Father Walter Chiswick is about how he chose love, how he chose love. It might seem that he was in a passive state in, in prison, that he simply allowed what, to, what happened to him to happen to him. But as he said in that last quote about freedom, these circumstances never make us passive. They always force us to make a decision. And that decision is always an active decision. We can see in the case of many of the people around him that he describes in his memoirs, that many did just turn inward. They just tried to survive until they ultimately took their lives or they allowed themselves to, in total despair, to just sort of wither. But others chose to serve one another, to do good, to return evil with good, to love. As uh, one saint said, he says, where there is no love, plant love and you will reap love. Where there is no love, put love, and it will bring back love. So abandonment, surrender, total confidence and trust in God is active. It's not passive. It's not defeatist. It's not throwing up your hands and saying there's nothing I can do. But there's always the possibility in every circumstance of our life, no matter how small or how big it seems, to infuse love, to put love, to become an agent of transformation, to become an instrument of God's expression, his manifestation, to be like, if we, mer we might dare say, to be like Christ in the gospel today, to be a sign, to be a sign pointing to somebody for hope, for encouragement, for confidence. That's what Christ did to the widow of Nain today. He said to her, do not weep because there is hope and I will show you hope. And I will show you that your future, as long as you trust in me, as long as you allow me to guide your life, is full of hope and full of prosperity. Godly prosperity, not necessarily physical, material prosperity, but godly prosperity. And this is what we learn from the great examples of people like Father Wilter Chiswick and so many thousands, hundreds of thousands like him, whose stories we will never hear until we see them in heaven and then hear from them directly about the grace of God who worked in their life. May the prayers of Father Walter Chiswick and all who are like him, may he remember us before the throne of God and may he give us, through his example, a way forward in our own circumstances and troubles. And glory be to him now and ever into the ages of ages. Amen.